everyone's favorite autodidactic iconoclast, Drew Marshall. on the show today, Tim. I gotta say, I, I, you know, I was hoping actually we could hijack the show and just talk about the new album. Well, actually, I'd hope to play a lot of ABBA because Drew hates <laughs> ABBA. You are what? the proverbial dancing queen. Yes, I am. Well, yeah. you know, ABBA, ABBA yeah. father, I figured there was some sort right. of spiritual a, connection. There was a tie in there. Yes, I, think, I can yes. get you two going, brother. I'll, okay, I'll take care of that Okay, let's get a little, uh, can we break a few waves maybe? A little later on? Or some wind. Or Either some or. wind, yeah. Our next guest is uh, William P. Young, Paul Young, author of The Shack and Crossroads. He's got a new book coming out very soon, uh, which I'm hoping we're going to actually talk about today. I want to talk a little bit about uh, gender today uh, with Paul. We're going to talk about relationships. Paul, are you are you online? Oh yeah, I, I was reading Abba's Child by Brendan Manning. Who, you know, <laughs> nice, nice title uh, of a long album. Hey yeah. Paul, I don't know if you've been listening to the show because clearly you don't have anything better to do with your time. But I did a, I did a card trick for Tim earlier today on the show. Would you like to see one? Yes, I would love to see one. Yeah, it's I mean, really actually... Especially it, on radio. This I is why know. I was a radio disc jockey, because nobody could see me. Yeah, and it, you know what I can't handle is the fact that there's no applause. It's really just, it, it's anti-relational, Paul. Oh, well, you know what? I'm sure they can manufacture some. Oh, yes. Yes, I think... You know, if, if, if you use the card trick right, it sounds like applause. It, well, you know what? That's actually true. I think, I think Drew mm-hmm. Marshall's been manufacturing applause for years now, I think. Well, you know, Drew, he, I'm sure he's not even listening, so. <laughs> oh, you know? something tells me he is, yeah. What? I love you, Drew. Yeah. <laughs> I do too, Drew. Um, Paul, what are you, you know, I wanted to have you on the show today. I've got a couple of sort of ideas of, of where we can head with this. Uh, I think we've got a couple of uh, uh, quotes that uh, that I've pulled off uh, with respect to, you know, gender and disparity and so on. And, and we're going to leave that for a second. First, though, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your new book. And folks, who, uh, for those of you who don't know, this is Paul Young, author of The Shack. I think we're, oh, I don't know, about 20 million copies sold now, which is just utterly astounding. <laughs> to me. Um, but, uh, yeah, tell us about your it's new book. It's utterly astounding to pretty much everybody. <laughs> to me in, in particular. So, yeah, you're not alone in that. Um, and especially you know me, so that even makes it more utterly astounding. It's, it's true. The, Paul's uh, a pretty unimpressive guy, folks. <laughs> he is. Um, just ask my kids. Or That's my right. Family, or, you know? My grandbabies think I'm the bomb, though, just so you know. Yes, I bet but, they uh, do. So they're all seven and under, so give them some time. I bet, yeah. The, uh, the new book is a novel, like Crossroads in the Shack, um, but unlike them, it's, um, it's really a 40-year project that I didn't think that I would ever actually do, Um because uh, it involves one of those basic questions that I grew up with in the evangelical fundamental Christian community and that you're not allowed to ask. And the, and the basic question was, it seems obvious that women, generally speaking, are so much healthier than men, generally speaking. So how come men are the ones that are only in charge here? And that was not a question that was really given a lot of... not question generally weren't given any space but that one in particular was uh, seemed to be a fairly rebellious one and so i've been kind of working on that question for the last 40 years and and i wouldn't have attempted this until you know with having written the shack and crossroads um 
it sort of gave me the encouragement to say, you know, maybe there is a way to have this conversation and tackle the paradigm of what we have done to women and children as um, as humanity, particularly um, how it's encased us in in, in a very difficult. Uh, relational situation both between men and women but it's also done devastation as far as I'm concerned in defining what masculinity is what femininity is and it's totally impacted the way that that we understand the character and nature of God who is neither male nor female but all of maternity and all of fraternity originate and that's you know I'm I'm absolutely disclosing that my uh, faith bias is uh the God that's revealed in Jesus and the fact that there are uh, three persons in the oneness of God. So I, I begin with that assumption um, right out there. But then it invites the whole question of the maternal and the paternal uh, originating within the very being of God. And then we created all this all this stuff, um, role differentiation, and then the, the um, huge amount of damage that we've done uh, and silenced the voice. Of, of women in particular in a world with, where we are desperate for some healing and uh, you, you know, Paul, a way to bridge. Paul, you, you know, you talked about questions you can't ask, and I sometimes I wonder about the, you know, that comment you made about the damage that we've done. You know, how, you know, how do we how do we distinguish between that? You know, we had a clip earlier on in the show. By the way, I've got Wendy Gritter here with me and, and Trevor Brisbane. He's, by the way, nice. yeah. So they, they might uh, chime in here from uh, time to time because we were we were earlier on talking about kind of the new atheism. And we watched a clip, or we watched a clip. We listened to a clip by Stephen Fry. And, and, and we talked a little bit about this idea of, uh, you know, we, we don't kind of believe in the God that he doesn't believe in either. And, and how do we get beyond right. these the damage that's been done by the church, by us, by our own understanding, by our own interpretation to get to what you're calling, you know, um, hmm, a more inclusive or a more relational assumption about God as a starting point. Good question. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe we can begin by talking about the things that we have in common rather Mm -hmm. than the ways that we've been able to divide ourselves. And, um, and in terms of our commonness, uh, is is fundamentally our humanity. But inside that is our relationship to our children. I mean, if we if we can start anywhere, let's talk about our kids. Let's talk about our children and our grandchildren, and and what we desire for them in terms of authenticity and and the freedom to be everything that we would want them to be. You know, and let's let's start that as a point of commonality and. Um, and then maybe, maybe inside that conversation, we can begin to listen one to another and begin to understand the differences that we bring to the table that are really something that we don't want to disinherit or lose and begin to celebrate the differences while creating a framework for what's common to us. And then maybe together we can stand against the inhumanity that has risen inside of our our, our brokenness and our our ways of hurting one another and um, and you know the and the systems that we create in order to control the universe whether they're religious or political or economic or social and um, and, and put put the cards on the table and and just say is there a possibility that there's a different way to approach these conversations that 
will constantly celebrate our humanity. Not that we're going to have our points of disagreement because, you know, you, you run into anybody's paradigm and my own. And it, it is uh, dislocating and, and, and work and difficult. But um, I'm, I'm fundamentally at the core, even in the face of huge tragic losses that this world constantly presents, I'm fundamentally an optimist. And that, and that, again, comes from the centrality of the person of Jesus uh, and the revelation of Jesus in, about the goodness in a different way uh, that he is the incarnation of or the embodiment of. So maybe inside these conversations, there is a way to do this. I'm hopeful. So, Paul, Wendy here. Uh, given Hi. my context, I, I right away wonder about a starting point related to children and uh, the population that I get to hang out with, many of whom are not able to have children, are living single lives, Jesus who didn't have children. And so it's interesting to me that so quickly we are in categories that divide us, even when we're trying to bring unity. And James Brownson's written a book called Bible, Gender, Sexuality. And one of the things he goes back to in the creation account is that we have so emphasized gender complementarity as the starting point for our understanding of humanity. And Jim would say, well, actually, that's less about difference and more about sameness and this bond of kinship. And kinship isn't only related to procreation and sort of the nuclear family, but the kinds of bonds and covenants that we build with one another um, based on love, based on uh, mutual self-emptying. And I wonder if that isn't a better starting point, this idea of kinship as it finds its expression in relationship in ways that is more broadly inclusive for um all human beings, regardless of gender, marital status, uh, whether they're parents or not, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, you know what? A well, point well taken, and I I completely agree with you. Um, I the, the language that I used was our children and our grandchildren, mm -hmm. trying to be that inclusive uh, without those compartmentalizing. One of my issues mm -hmm. with uh, the tradition that I grew up in is that inside the traditional Genesis story, there is no place for a single person, not a single woman particularly. Mm -hmm. And um, and that is one of the issues um, that I'm kind of going after inside story. But your point is well taken. Um, and uh, it's it's that's good. Let's introduce that that kind of language because I think it is more accurate and more appropriate. So I'm with you on that. <laughs> Hey, yeah. hey, Paul. Can can we talk a little bit about your new book? I wonder. I wonder to what degree uh, the new book is being driven by questions that most of us wouldn't normally ask. You know, I wonder to you know, with my development background and social social justice sort of edge, how are you going to be speaking to white rich men in this book? Yeah, it's called well, Eve, you right? Know, I've made, it is. At Crossroads was I put you know a wealthier side economically middle. Uh, age uh, white guy as the pro as the actually the antagonist or protagonist even in a sense um, in terms of, of Tony and uh, he's really a despicable human being and in the shack you know Mackenzie is a likable person but he is a he is really an embodiment of of who I am and he needed a a revelation uh, an understanding of the character of God that was way outside of his box and. Um, 
So I'm aiming at that. In terms of the question about, um, you know, part of my part of my desire about even playing in this this particular river, which is already full of boats. Um, that's one of the things that's different about the Shack and Crossroads versus Eve is that I'm, this is a river that there are a lot of boats already and a lot of people in the river. And um, so it's not just oh, white, powerful men, but but we have had, we have been the locus, locus of power for the last couple hundred years in a, in a great way where we have dominated the culture and colonialized it and created incredible disparities, whether it's been social or economic or gender or whatever, and um, and then defined everything according to our desire to control it. So um, what I found is that a, a lot of those questions for me go back to the story that's in Genesis. But here's the challenge that has made this piece of work the most difficult piece of work that I've ever been involved with creative, uh, creatively, and that is how do you... How do you maintain a storyline um, that is accessible so that, and yet I am, I am being authentically intentional about being inside the text, which is the Hebrew scriptures of Genesis 1 through 4, as far as, sorry, the backdrop of what a, a storyline is involved with. And... Um, and so that's the challenge of of Eve. So the storyline actually centers on an adolescent girl who finds herself caught between worlds. And um, and then the backdrop of that is this interconnection with the character of Eve and, and allowing a different narrative to unfold that I think is an accurate narrative that also speaks to some of the fundamental dislocations um, as Wendy was talking about with uh, with Brown's work in the Genesis story, I don't think we we have such a mythological view of that storyline that we don't even read what's in the text. Mm. And um, and so my challenge is how how do I put that inside story without it becoming propaganda? I mean, um, and without losing anybody, I, I want a teenager to be able to read Eve and not get lost to be to be swept up inside the storyline. So, and that's part of the challenge because I'm dealing with some very fundamental framing well, and, that's part of my tradition. Yeah. And, w- and when I saw you a few weeks ago, Paul, I mean, didn't didn't you kind of imply that, I mean, you're, you are, um, you're, I mean, you're challenging the status quo on this one in a big way with respect to uh, uh, gender disparity. Uh, yeah, I am. And it's not like I'm looking for a fight. <laughs> Oh it's, yes, you are. It's real. I'm not. I'm actually not. <laughs> and I. I have never. When I was younger, I had a huge chip on my shoulder because I'm a missionary kid and a preacher's kid, right. and you know most of my damage came from that kind of world. And um, and those are my people. I mean, that's where I grew up and came out of. And I'm. I'm not. I have no desire to become a new voice for division. I'm just so. Uh, I'm just so at the core opposed to the insinuation of accusation mm. and division and mm. division so what i'm hopeful here is that in raising these questions and looking at the paradigm that we already have there may be an opportunity to change the narrative or to embrace a narrative that i think is more accurate 
that allows us to hear a story that comes through that is way more beautiful than we imagine. And, and that will be a place of sort of beginning to clear some of the wreckage that's, that uh, has happened because we have a male, white, dominating mythological narrative of some of the very core beginnings of, of you know, how things went sideways relationally. And so, yeah, it ends up, it ends up, it does challenge the systems and the ways that uh, we manage them. And, it, but not in, not because I'm looking for the fight. Right. Um, well, no, because you, gonna, you yeah. have a, you, uh, well, I mean, from what I know of your work and hearing you speak and so on and becoming friends, you, you've got a, you've got this inclusive uh, edge that you want to see applied, like your your line about how do we manage them? Well, you want you want to manage these things a little more relationally, right? I mean, it's it's about an embrace. It's about welcoming people in, you know not, what? Not, I, not pushing them out. Yeah, and I think management. That you know, the very use of the word management is incorrect. I mean, in terms it is. Of, you know, it's non relational. Yeah, management it is a non relational no, term. No, very corporate. And no, it's very corporate. And so, and and, and I. I applied that to part of the wreckage that we have created, you know, and management becomes part of that wreckage. And, uh, and so there may, you know, when you get a different narrative for a story, it changes everything. Um, when you've heard something one way and then you find out that there is a different way to look at it, it begins to change all kinds of other things. And so I'm, I'm saying we've got a storyline for what takes place in this really core um, uh, beginning story um, with uh, male and female and God and the garden and the serpent and all of these things. But a, a lot of what we have built in traditional, not traditional like uh, early church tradition, but in the last couple hundred years tradition, has, um, has been to uh, bolster our desire for power and violence and control and and uh, playing the victim or playing the power pursuer or whatever and and maybe there is something that is much more beautiful and authentic that allows for a conversation or a, a real conversation to take place and we can get the we can start to sweep clear um, this detritus that we have collected o- over our manipulation of culture and people and gender and uh, ethnicity and those kinds of things. So, yeah, implicitly it, it will be a challenge. But, um, you know, again, we're being challenged every day. And, uh, I mean, I'm not opposed to the, the questions about my own paradigms. Paul, we, we have a – we you'll be thrilled people. to know we have an ex pastor in the studio with us today and uh you you may you may even have met him at some point trevor brisbane but he's a bit of an anarchist as well you should see the t-shirt he's wearing i uh, i can't even i can't even talk about it live on air um but he i, I want to hear what he has to say or what question he has with respect to this whole idea of uh, management you know capital m or or systems or oppression or or power yeah go for it yeah, no, Paul. Thank you. Good to good to talk to you again. Um, exactly. Really appreciate all you're doing, and I just, you know, so glad that there are people like you who are willing to stick their necks out. And it's, I mean, it seems a bit ir- ironic in 2015 that as followers of Jesus, um, trying to talk about gender issues and equality, 
will be a flashpoint, right? That just seems seems silly, seems ridiculous. I, I think one of the things that I've experienced most, and I've heard you talk about it, and don't want to send you off on on another direction unless you want to go there, but is um, is the violence and this this idea, this concept of God has to be violent, and I think one of the ways we can only talk about gender roles or what atonement really is about or um, human sexuality is if we're willing to lay down even just for a temporary moment our idea of God being violent and if we have these conversations that God's going to get us. What would you say to some of your readers, Paul, who, who you know, probably over a coffee with you would say, you know, some of the stuff you're talking about, about the tr- Trinity, about gender, we're with you. But if we go down there, we're going to violate the Bible and is not hell at stake. What, what do you say to, to to people in the pews who are terrified that, that you know, you give a guy like, like Paul Young an inch and, you know, it's hell in a handbasket? Yeah. <laughs> no pun intended, right? So, um... You know, those are my people, and I, and I understand what they're afraid of. They, they have accepted a non-relational theology um, that is a set of propositions, and they have agreed to them as their understanding of faith or belief. And, and so, I, you know, what happens is they read the shack, and God the Father is a large black African-American woman, and they, it freaks them out. And, and it's because they're, they're thinking that, you know, I'm defining God again, except in, in these terms. And they're afraid that if one of the cards in their house of cards comes down, that everything's going to come down. So it's kind of an all or nothing. And, and, and frankly, some of this legalistic stuff that they came through saved their lives. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't, you know, I, Again, because I don't want to become a, a new voice of division, I don't want to create the religious people that are part of my family as now the them that I've got to mm-hmm. um, create as the enemy in order to justify my existence. And, and, and that's why I keep saying those people that kind of don't want to even engage with the questions, those are my people. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and and the oppressors, they're my people too, and and I and I have been one of them, and I have been a betrayer, and I, you know, there's been a movement in my life. Um, this thing about violence is so essential because we're gonna face it more and more. We've empowered systems that you know, there's no nation state on the planet that doesn't exist apart from violence somebody died for this nation state to exist and then we find a way to baptize it and and sacramentalize it in such a way to justify it and then we justify the violence and and then we find a way to do it in the name of god to justify it and um and i think uh the world systems the informational blockages and things like that are collapsing so fast that we're going to have to find a way to actually talk to each other and not to create categories and then try to execute them. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a conversation that that you find uh, Jesus. He stands up in a synagogue and he reads from Isaiah and he says, this has been, um, that what was prophesied here is is now true inside, in this very moment. And he sits down and if you remember that story, 
They want to kill him right after that. Their response to Jesus standing up and reading from that passage was they wanted to kill him. And it's and he gets uh, whisked out of there right before they are actually capable of putting him over the edge of a cliff. And, and you're going like, all he did was stand up and read Isaiah. But you know what he read was a passage that had been circulated widely as the passage that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would stand up and say, this is me. And he had done that, except, except he didn't quote the entire passage. He left the last phrase off. And because he left the last phrase off, they wanted to kill him. And the last phrase was that this would begin the day of God's violence or vengeance. And he leaves it off of the passage in Isaiah. And they didn't want a Messiah who is not going to be violent. They didn't want to... They were so furious because Jesus would not identify himself as this violent rescuer from oppression. And and that's part of the beauty of, to me, of the person of Jesus, that every opportunity he had for violence, he laid down his life, mm-hmm. expressing that, look, this is a God who by nature submits, submits to us. And that's the mark of the cross. This is not God's idea. This is the iconic symbol of violence that we brought to the table. It's a torture device. Mm-hmm. And so God climbs into our iconic, brutal invention of darkness and submits to it in order to defeat it by submission. And and you go like, okay, so that changes the whole conversation. Again, we've got a different narrative here. You know, violence, and everybody knows this, violence begets violence. And, you know, there is no solution in retributive violence and vengeance. And it, it creates an atmosphere where we're going to have to deal with the children of children of children who are then going to respond back because we become the oppressors. So there's got to be, and I think the way of Jesus opens up a possibility for a conversation that is outside of that violence. And it infects everything, including the gender conversation and the fact that, you know, we have secreted authority and power um, and not allowed uh, you know, like we are in charge as men and and have dominated uh, the world through violence and power. And um, that's, that has to change. And I think it's going to change. Hey, Paul, Paul, I have a question for you. Could, yeah. could you write a best-selling book? Uh, that's what I hear. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome, man. I, I'm going to quote you and women here, uh, the organization that you can find online pretty easily. Quote, gender equality is not only a basic human right, but its achievement has enormous socioeconomic ramifications. Empowering women fuels thriving economies, spurring productivity and growth. Yet gender inequalities remain deeply entrenched in every society. Women lack access to decent work and face occupational segregation and gender wage gaps. And the quote goes on. Is this part of what you're taking on with your new book? By the way, when is the new book coming out? 
Uh, the target date is September 22nd, but we'll see. Okay. I'm, I'm about 80% done, and I'm in my third rewrite, and it keeps reshuffling the deck, and, and rightfully so. I love the editing that, process. The beautiful but. thing about uh, the 22nd release date is that it's only six days after my 50th birthday, so oh, I just okay, wanted to yeah, let yeah. everyone know that. Um, <laughs> uh, we, we can get my coordinates online, and uh, I do like iTunes gift cards, and I shop quite often at Chapters. So, um, so yeah. You know, uh, to go, to go back to that comment, Yes, yeah. Uh, every, yes, and any conversation about these kinds of things, and I think if theology affects the huge number of people, m- most of the planet is in some kind of a faith system or other, uh, of one sort or another. And so these kinds of conversations affect massive numbers of people, and, and that has a trickle effect in terms, not like economics, but like in in terms of idea and conversation and uh, relational communication, all those kinds of things. There is no question about the data as far as, you know, um, one of the organizations that I love is uh, Opportunity International that does almost exclusive microfinancing with women because they found that it's the most productive and the most helpful. And last year, I think they, they've got 10 million people involved in this. And um, they... Uh, one of the statistics that they'd like to talk about is that when a woman earns a dollar, um, more than 90 cents of it goes to others, her family, her children, her um, her neighbors. Uh, when a man earns a dollar, it's around 40 cents. And, um, and, uh, and the majority of the money is spent on self and all that kind of... Those are real statistics. And they found that um, by empowering communities... Um, through women who are relationally sensitive as a general, again, generalization, but they are bonded and connected to human relationships um, in, in a way that's healthier than men, generally speaking. And, and I, you know, all the statistics and everything else supports that. And yet that's the, the, the place where we have shut down the empowerment. And I'm not I'm, I'm not about complementarianism, and I'm not about even egalitarianism and equality. Those are, to me, terms that that are part of the same scale. Uh, I'm talking about, let's get rid of the scale. Let's talk about our humanity. I'm, I'm talking to a person here, and they bring to the table the uniqueness of their, of their gender, yes, and their history, and their culture, and their ethnicity, and all of those things are gifts that they bring to the table. Mm-hmm. But we've got to get rid of the scale that puts a valuation on one end as opposed to the other or tries to define everything along that spectrum. And, and to me, the, in terms of my opinion about these things, it's grounded in a sense that God is the entire spectrum and not, you know, 51% male and 49% female, therefore, you know, any of that kind of mythology. And so, yes, this affects economics. This affects this affects everything. Yep. And, oh. and it just, you know, obviously the world would be a better place if women weren't in charge, as Sarah McLaughlin says. So. Yeah. And, Amen, uh, Paul. Yeah. Amen, Paul. <laughs> yeah, Paul, I, it's Tim here. I, I heard another interesting stat, and I don't mean to bring up stats again, but this week was, at least in North America, National Equal Pay Day. Which means that for a man uh, to work the year, calendar year 2014, you know, January 1st to December 31st, a woman has to have had worked into 2015, this week of April, to have equal payment. So they have to work an extra four months 
to get the same amount of pay for the same job in North America yeah. here. Doesn't that, doesn't that seem wrong? Yeah. <laughs> you know? It just is wrong. And, and, and that's okay to say, you know what, these kind of things are wrong. And, and again, I think we're moving, I think we're in the century of the woman, for one thing. I think this, this century, I think a hundred years from now, we'll look back at, at these kinds of conversations, particularly the theological ones, and we were, and we'll go like, what in the world were we thinking, mm, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I so, think you're so right. Yeah. I, I, yeah, yeah, archaic, right? I mean, we're just, we're stone yeah. ages. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's interesting. I, I get to be in this conversation being one of those I, iconic middle class white, you know? Um, I'm almost 60. I'll be 60 in a couple of weeks. And, uh, and I mean, I am such a representation of what's wrong with the world, <laughs> you know? And, and I come from a background in which we have um, an eschatology that I grew up with that matches ISIS because it's apocalyptic and, you know, we're going to be involved in mercy killings and violence in order to free those people up from the hell that they're heading toward. It's like, yeah, it's are qu- we nuts? That's quite a statement. You know? Hey, listen, I wish you well on the deadline with the new book. I can't wait to see how it's going to change the conversation, how it's going to uh, turn our understanding of, of men and women on our on its heads, because I, I think it's going to do that. You know, I've, I've been in arguments about the shack before with people or, or about, you know, this mysterious Paul Young guy. And I said, listen, you can argue all you want with his theology, but you can't argue with his story. And I think that's, yeah, exactly. Thanks a lot, man. I love you, brother. Holy ground, brother. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. So we are about, uh, I mean, we're coming into uh, four o'clock. We've got some music uh, guests joining us a little later on today. And I think um, he is going to not only entertain us, but challenge us a little bit on a few levels as well. But we've got two more uh, interviews, two more guests. Wendy Gritter, who's here in the uh, uh, audience of six uh, here in the studio. Uh, she's going to be chatting a little bit more about her uh, book and the work that she does. And we've got a really interesting interview closing off just before the musical guest, uh, Dr. Peter Singer. So stay with us uh, here on the Drew Marshall Show. Don't forget to tweet about us. And we're going out to a little Bono, I think, aren't we? to find quality guest speakers these days. If they're interesting, they're usually expensive. And if they're cheap, they're usually boring. Well, here's someone who's both expensive and boring. Drew Marshall is a high school dropout who tried to become a pro football player but didn't make it. He then tried to become a firefighter and didn't make it. Now he's trying to become a stand-up comic. (laughs) Good luck with that, Mr. Marshall. But if you're looking for someone who's unpredictable, incredibly honest, provocative, genuine, then we've got the right guy. Everyone seems to be an expert on something these days. Why not book someone who's an expert on nothing? Except how to be brutally honest about yourself and your faith. To book Drew Marshall as your guest speaker, go to drewmarshall.ca. Drew Marshall.